Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Dr. Ahmed Shahid is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief. Last month, he released a historic report to the U.N. General Assembly, the first U.N. report of its kind to be wholly dedicated to anti-Semitism. Dr. Shahid is a consummate diplomat, a former foreign minister of the Maldives, and a lifelong human rights crusader. He joins us now in studio to discuss his momentous report. Ahmed, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us before presenting to AJC's Jacob Blaustein Institute for Human Rights later today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this is the first ever UN human rights report dedicated solely to anti-Semitism. If I understand correctly, you were appointed Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, and then you got to pick your topic. So why did you pick anti-Semitism? Well, you know, when I began my work on this mandate three years ago, I observed how um, disengaged or unengaged the UN was with the topic of anti-Semitism. We hadn't actually served the community at all. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was observing um, how violent were attacks on the Jewish community, disproportionately high in terms of population numbers. And in the time I noticed this, I've seen a huge uptick in anti-Semitic incidents and hate crimes. So really, it's a long overdue report. Mm-hmm. Just before we go any further, we should probably help people understand a little bit about what's in the report. So can you share with us you know, two or three of the, of the top-level findings uh, of, of, your, of your work? Well, the first thing, of course, is for me to demonstrate that, that my mandate on freedom of general belief uh, should address this subject, and I make a case for that. Then I look at the methodology of my work, because it's important to know how I developed the report. And then I look at the different forms in which anti-Semitism manifests itself in the past and today, because it's an evolving and changing um, phenomenon. And then I look at trends, both in terms of the incidents and the violent incidents as well. Then I look at um, the online dimension, which is quite a significant uh, mm-hmm. forum, as, as so to speak, in terms of how anti-Semitism is manifested. Then I look at state responses. There is good practice. There are also bad practices. And then finally, of course, I make recommendations. A lot of the report is focused on the important need to define anti-Semitism as a way to understand what the phenomenon is. Therefore, the the definition by the Holocaust Remembrance Alliance uh, is given of full coverage in the report, along with concerns some have raised about it. But I offer clear guidelines on how and when it might be used uh, to to document and to raise awareness about anti-Semitism. My other recommendations, of course, include uh, calling upon states to ensure they have proper laws in place to to address anti-Semitism, to support victims of such uh, crimes, and to use education as a very uh, important tool to address this phenomenon. And of course, uh, for the UN, to appoint uh, um, a high-level envoy uh, to address this issue at at a global level. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism. This is a first from the UN that it would recommend via your report for all states to adopt that definition. What are the merits of that particular definition, which AJC is proud to have helped author? Well, what is important is that we should know what we are talking about. Mm-hmm. So what this definition does is give us guidance on when to spot anti-Semitism. It's not comprehensive because there are some aspects that, that are not covered by it, but it's a very good starting point. Mm-hmm. And it also gives examples of when it might be anti-Semitic. So what I'm saying is the purpose of this definition was to monitor uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes and hate incidents. And then it's a very good tool to raise awareness uh, about 
when this happens, but it's also intended to be used as a non-legal tool. So what I'm saying is if used as a non-legal educational tool to monitor, document, and respond to hate crimes is a very useful tool, and therefore states must ensure they use this for this in this in this fashion to make sure they, they're prepared to understand and respond to anti-Semitic hate crimes. Mm-hmm. Right. As, as an American organization, AJC, we're concerned at times when the report is used for kind of enforcement actions because hate speech is, is problematic, but it's also problematic from the American perspective to cut down on, on someone's freedom of expression. So the working definition can sometimes toe the line on some of those issues. Is that what you meant about the non-legal educational perspective? Indeed. I think uh, we should understand that freedom of expression is vital even to deal with anti-Semitism. So whenever someone tries to censure speech, one has to be very careful that the lines are drawn according to international standards. And that standard is inciting violence, discrimination, and hostility against somebody else. Where that line is not crossed, then of course we should use other means. We must of course denounce anti-Semitism in all its forms. Uh, we, we call, I call on government leaders to respond to uh, such uh, incidents by denouncing them. But uh, where they want to criminalize speech, then they should have a very high threshold, which follows international standards uh, on ensuring that they only criminalize speech that is inciting violence uh, and discrimination against people individuals or communities. Mm-hmm. Jewish leaders have spoken, to my mind, convincingly about the way in which Israel is kind of seen today as the Jew among the nations, right? That a lot of the kind of mutating, shifting, anti-Semitic perspectives that were anti-Semitic canards, tropes, etc., that were projected onto Jews in the 19th and first half of the 20th centuries um, are now projected onto Israel. And so Israel has become kind of a, a prime target for underlying anti-Semitism, cloaked in this kind of thin veil of political discourse. That's something that the working definition helps to tackle. I suspect I I know your answer to this question, but I'll ask it nonetheless. Can criticism of Israel be anti-Semitism? Well, I think one has to carefully read the definition by the Holocaust Demoniza Alliance. Mm -hmm. They said that the examples they list, which includes uh, demonizing Israel, can be anti-Semitic, but to make a context-based assessment, because in all cases, you have to make a context-based assessment. And they're very clear, criticizing Israel, like like you would any other democratic state, does not constitute anti-Semitism. So I think there is enough scope in the definition to ensure that that both uh, the use of Israel criticism to to parade anti-Semitic tropes is identified, as well as uh, ensuring that there is legitimate scope to criticize Israel for its actions as a government Mm -hmm. actor. Mm -hmm. Um, Ahmed, your report documents rising anti-Semitic violence and hate speech around the world and identifies it as a threat to Jews, but not only a threat to Jews, as quote-unquote toxic to democratic societies. We talk a lot here at AJC about what we see as the three primary sources of anti-Semitism, the far right, the hard left, and certain radical segments of the Muslim community. Does that blueprint fit your findings? Yes, I do point out that uh, anti-Semitism comes in, in a variety of forms and almost all across the spectrum of politics, society, religions, and other groups in society. And um, and I give examples of how these three different perspectives are represented. And um, what, I of, what I'm offering is a human rights-based approach to this subject because it's such a wide phenomenon. And I point out that anti-Semitism isn't essentially about Jews. It It is a manifestation of a deep dysfunction in our societies. It's about... Mm almost everybody else, how we become xenophobic, how we become intolerant, how we, how, how we are bigoted, how we are racist. So it's a, it's a global phenomenon. It covers everybody. And you're right to point out, uh, as a note, that there, there, there is anti-Semitic 
sentiment and discourse and, and messages coming from the far left. There is um, a far right uh, anti-Semitic crimes perp- uh, perpetrated um, quite frequently. And there are also radical Muslims who do this. And of course, um, beyond the, these hate crimes, uh, there is widespread anti-Semitic prejudice across all societies. And I note that in Muslim societies, in some examples, that there is widespread prejudice uh, amongst scholars, among students. I know textbooks which convey mm. anti-Semitic uh, content, as I do with regard to some political parties which parade as champions of the left. Mm-hmm. Often when national or multinational bodies like the UN talk about anti-Semitism, they pair it with Islamophobia um, or with other forms of discrimination, right? You just talked about some hard left folks who define themselves constitutionally as anti-racism. Yet, as we've seen with some of those examples, some of those people who think of themselves as anti-racism crusaders are in fact themselves occasionally perpetuating anti-Semitism. So the result is that these bodies that will talk about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia or anti-Semitism and racism, they very rarely have the opportunity to speak specifically about anti-Semitism. And in the meantime, as you note, hatred of Jews and violent attacks on Jews have kept going up. So why is it important to tackle anti-Semitism as its own problem and not only as anti-Semitism and? First of all, I think uh, we should look at intolerance in all its forms because they rarely occur as single phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anti-Semitism, as you just said, you know, is the oldest hatred and is often the canary in the coal mine of all forms of hatred. has in the past, um, you know, we've seen through that how how devastating it can be on communities. And I think the important thing is to look at something as widespread as anti-Semitism, um, as something that's been of concern to many communities over, over time, as a good starting point to address um, all forms of hatred. But beyond that, every hatred requires a specific focus on its specificities. We need to look at everything in a broad general human rights framework, but each each form of hatred requires a focus on its specificity. So anti-Semitism, given given its 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 you know um, widespread occurrence, it's almost endemic everywhere. Requires an urgent attention, also because we have neglected this. And like I said, I am very concerned, deeply concerned about the very violent forms in which this manifested. Often in societies which have very strong rule of law traditions, we come into a week from the Pittsburgh one year of week from the Pittsburgh attack, and six months later we had the Huawei attack in California and then just last week in Halle in Germany. And throughout, you find very violent forms of attacks on Jewish communities. I think we have to focus on this subject and get to the bottom of it and find ways to address it. And I would argue that if we can address anti-Semitism effectively, then we will have the tools to address other forms of hatred as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we here at AJC certainly agree with that. You know, it's, it's very important to us to fight all types of hatred and bigotry. And at the same time, we know that there is a time when it's, entirely appropriate to speak about just anti-Semitism or just anti-Black racism or just Islamophobia without kind of dragging other things into it, as you mentioned. Ahmed, before we close, I have to ask one question about the UN because uh, a lot of our listeners, a lot of American Jews in general, um, are deeply skeptical of the United Nations. Now, I know the UN does a lot it consists of a lot. There are a lot of different arms and bodies and committees and figures and special rapporteurs like yourself that fall under the UN umbrella. But this is an organization that Jews are deeply suspicious of. Why should Jews today be glad to see this report, your report on anti-Semitism, coming from an organization that they are so suspicious of? 
Well, I'm not saying that anyone should be glad that the report is out. I, th- I think it's a, I think it's a good starting point. Uh, my attempt is to start working on this subject to let the UN also start focusing on this. I call for a joined-up approach by different UN bodies on this subject. There are many who should be working on this. UNESCO, uh, UN Scientific Educational Body, has just developed late last year. Uh, a policy guide for education in dealing with anti-Semitism in schools. They're following up with another book this year on pedagogical aspects of handling anti-Semitism in classrooms. So there are UN bodies working on this. I think it's important that the global reach of the UN is used to address this issue. And I think we should find ways to work together uh, to address this issue. Also going back to earlier point, uh, while I agree with you that we should all focus on specific elements of each type of uh, uh, hatred, um, what we should avoid is what I call victim competition. Mm. Uh, there is a bit of that happening as well. And I'm not saying it's happening here, but we can all work together um, to address all forms of intolerance. And if we are doing well on one, we would necessarily be doing well in others as well. I certainly agree with you there. I think our philosophy at AJC has long been that, you know, specifically in America, but really around the world as well, our patchwork of communities and societies can work to uplift one another rather than focusing on on who's been holding each other down. Ahmed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us for your diligent work on this report and for all the great work that I know is yet to come. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on air with you. Thank you. Now, a segment from the Times of Israel. Hi, this is Amanda Borshaldan from the Times of Israel. Today we're taking you deep under Jerusalem to the city of David, located just outside Jerusalem's old city. We're here with archaeologist Ari Levy and walking a newly excavated two millennia old road. It was once used by tens of thousands of Jews during the three annual pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Shavuot and Sukkot, which is celebrated this week. My name is Ari Levy. I uh, work in the Israel Antiquities Authority and I uh, manage this excavation of the Stepped Street. Archaeologists and historians call the road the Step Street. Uh, Those who like to link Jerusalem's Jewish past to its present tend to call it the Pilgrim's Path or the Pilgrimage Road. The pavement stones that we stand on top of them now were built by Pontius Pilatus at around uh, 20 AD. The project of building the street uh, took place between uh, 20 AD until 30 AD, and it served uh, the population of Jerusalem and the pilgrims that uh, came to Jerusalem uh, from uh, around uh, 30 AD until the destruction uh, of Jerusalem by the Romans at uh, 70 AD. If you would have uh, stood here uh, at the Roman period, at the time of uh, Pontius Pilate, we would have seen uh, the sky above us. Uh, the road itself uh, was uh, built without a roof, and we would have seen structures on both uh, sides, on the eastern side and on the western side. Uh, those structures were used as uh, shops in order to sell uh, food and uh, drinks to the people that uh, walked on the road and to the people that lived alongside uh, the road. 
Today, a 20,000 strong Arab neighborhood thrives five meters above the ancient paving stones. That's one reason why the excavations have drawn criticism from international governments and media, which condemn the City of David National Park and its funder, the private right-wing Al-Ad organization, for digging in an Arab neighborhood that only became part of Jerusalem after the 1967 Six-Day War. The city of David Park is a tourist site and a hotspot where ancient and modern politics meet. Here's Levy talking about the dig's two main goals. We have two goals, two main goals. One is touristical goal to reach a Givati parking lot and create a passage from the Silwan Pool up to Givati and from there to Davidson Center. Second goal, uh, as an archaeologist, we want to understand what happens here. It gives us a glimpse of what happened here after uh, 70 AD. The path follows the natural topography of the Teropian Valley and leads from the Pool of Silwan, which is probably the largest public ritual bath in the ancient city, and the site where traditionally Jesus is said to have healed the blind man. The street goes north to the plaza that is now called Robinson's Arch, and the newly excavated portion of the path stretches some 600 meters long, and it's 8 meters wide. The step street is still not fully open to the public, and won't be for a few years. It's still being excavated in two shifts a day from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. In late June... There was a headline-grabbing celebration of the excavation of some 200 meters that was attended by, among others, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. International media was quick to criticize Friedman, who ceremoniously took a sledgehammer to the reconstructed wall and eventually broke through. Here's Friedman's take on it. This past June, when I had the honor and the privilege to break a ceremonial wall to inaugurate the opening of the first half of the pilgrimage road and to walk the entire distance. Now, not everyone was pleased with this incredible discovery. Those who sought to deny the connection of the Jewish people to this holy city of Jerusalem, they all protested in the strongest terms that their denial of ancient Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, their denial of the ancient temple itself, had been exposed as a lie. Exposed not by politicians, not by activists, not by clergy, but by hard, objective, irrefutable science. But along with this controversial location, it is actually the excavation science, its methodology that has some archaeologists worried. Back in the tunnel with Levy, we go down to the southern end, which connects to the Silwan Pool, near where Ambassador Friedman broke the wall in June. As we walk in the humid tunnel, we pass by intriguing structures, including an unusual raised platform that may have once been used by the town crier. Hear ye, hear ye. Another surprisingly large structure appears to be a small Roman army garrison that was uncovered in 2018. It was probably built soon after the destruction of the temple to guard the nearby water pool. At the end of the southern end of the tunnel are remains from two Byzantine churches that were once pilgrimage sites. We've doubled back. Before we start walking up the northern section, there's what seems to be a town courtyard, only parts of which are exposed. North of the courtyard, the excavations continue, 
But while they are digging along the assumed path of the road, the archaeologists have not yet found any of the beautiful 2,000-year-old paving stones that line the southern section. Levy said they were probably taken for reuse, and that there is some documentation of that in the 19th century. At the end of the northern tunnel, we reach a massive, almost two-meter-high wall of earth. Levy explains where we are. We are standing now approximately 360 meters south of the southwestern corner of the Temple Mountain and about 220 meters north of the Silwan Pool. We are looking at the remains from the late Roman periods from the 3rd and 4th centuries AD which are built on top of the remains of the drainage, the main drainage system from the first century AD. And today we will start excavating this wall. So just for the method of excavating, we will excavate this wall. From within, the, between the stones, we will extract material, both pottery and we will extract samples for them. What looks like a jumble of bedrock, earth, and building stone to this reporter shows Levy clear stratification and context. But many archaeologists don't quite see the same picture. My name is Yonatan Mizrahi. I am the executive director of Emek Shaveh. Emek Shaveh is an Israeli organization uh, focused in the role of archaeology the political conflict and the way archaeology is presented to the public, uh, the way it's used as a historic narrative. We object the, the excavations Silwan for many reasons, but the main concern we are having about the excavation in, the, in Silwan and also in the old city, actually the horizontal excavations, excavation that done by the Israeli Antiquity Authority, but done following an ancient uh, street. And this street is excavated under, under the house of the neighborhood of Silwan and under some houses also in the old city. As opposed to standard practice in archaeology, which is to excavate a site top-down, layer by layer, always reaching an earlier time period, this tunnel is excavated horizontally. If you think of it like a sandwich, most archaeologists eat their sandwich first by taking off the top slice of bread, then carefully scraping off the mayo. Next, they'll remove the lettuce, hit the tomato, find the cheese, and then remove the bottom bread slice to expose sandwich bedrock. But because there are living, breathing people residing on top of this sandwich, the city of David team must leave the top layers fully intact and following the prize, the cheese, press forward by taking vertical slices of the sandwich around it. Remember, the top slice of bread cannot collapse here. It's a method that hasn't been done in modern times at any large excavation site and for good reason. As Levy himself told the Times of Israel, one of the challenges in horizontal excavation is we don't know what is in the next meter. So for activist archaeologist Mizrahi, that is only one of the problems at the excavation. Mizrahi heads a left-wing organization that is often at odds with the nationalistic El Ad group, 
that funds the City of David excavations. They also fund several of the Jewish settlers who have made homes in this Arab neighborhood. Here's Mizrahi explaining his objections. When the Israel Antiquity Authority decided to excavate this way, it actually means that the Antiquity Authority decided to do a project which is the focus is not in the method or in the science or the science needs or the science way. It's actually to do an excavation in order to provide a um, touristic interest or maybe, as we believe, to provide a political interest, which is to create an underground city in Silwan, City of David, and also underground city in the Muslim quarter and other quarters of the old city. Mizrahi is hardly alone in his criticisms. I reached out to Professor Jody Magnus, the leading archaeologist in the Holy Land, who is currently excavating an early synagogue at Chukok near the Sea of Galilee. Magnus, who last visited the Step Street in May, is a professor of early Judaism at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She has no affiliation with the city of David Digg. In conversation, uh, Magnus told me that she was complimentary of the ability and knowledge of the archaeologists who are performing the excavations. She is not bothered as well by the lack of paving stones in the northern section of the tunnel. She said they could have easily been taken for secondary use at any point in the last 2,000 years. But in this upcoming voice memo, she explains why the methodology of the horizontal excavation is so problematic. Methodologically, the problem of using a horizontal or tunnel type of excavation in archaeology is that it doesn't allow you to see the full context of the remains. Archaeology is all about context, but by digging in this way, you divorce the remains that you excavate from the remains that are above them and around them, and that is problematic from an archaeological point of view. However, other academics don't dismiss the City of David's horizontal methodology, Barilan University professor Aaron Mayer, who excavates at Biblical Gat, praised the team for its ability to work around the obvious difficulty presented by the residential neighborhood. Hi, I'm Professor Aaron Mayer from Barilan University. As opposed to previous work in tunnels, particularly in the City of David and other places, where they basically were excavating along the tunnel, not in a horizontal stratigraphic manner, in the current excavations in the city of David, they have made a method in which they can actually excavate in a truly stratigraphic scientific manner the various parts of the tunnel. And this is in fact a, a very important way to make sure that the excavation is conducted properly. But this is for sure something that's done in a manner that fits in with the best type of uh, field methodology used in the field, even in open excavations. Um, so I don't think there's currently a problem as long as this method is being used in which they excavate small portions in a stratigraphic manner and then continue in the tunnel and continuing in the stratigraphic excavation. I asked Levy about criticism he's heard over the years, and he says that when the project started, it was actually partly justified. But as time passes, the team avoids destruction and the documentation of the excavation is really stepped up with 3D models and other virtual means. He says that today he can view a reconstruction of the entire site on his computer and see the historical building processes and contexts. Levy says technology has allowed the archaeologists to overcome many of the obstacles of the excavation. And besides, he says, the archaeologists can't just remove the neighbor's houses. 
The other unspoken option is, of course, not to excavate at all. And that is what many archaeology purists would prefer. But for archaeologists such as Levy and the tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of tourists eager to see the street, it still holds many mysteries and helps fill in historical gaps. In each step of the way, after careful documentation, of course, the goal is to push on towards connecting the tunnel to the Western Wall Plaza. As Davy said frankly about the wall we faced at the end of our tour. We'll dismantle it, dismantle it all, and we'll continue going uh, north. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Sukkot, good for the Jews? The watchword of the high holidays was security. All throughout Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Jews around the world solemnly strode past squad cars and through metal detectors said thank you to the police officers and fellow congregants who were manning the doors and fretted about our safety. And indeed, a murderous anti-Semite tried to slaughter Jews as they prayed in Halle, Germany. Sukkot has been a refreshing change this week. Instead of turning our synagogues into fortresses and sealing ourselves behind their walls, Jews around the world have been spending time in the least secure of structures. The sukkahs for which the holiday is named. Rickety huts with fabric or plywood walls, bamboo ceilings, and not an alarm system in sight. There's something moving about that. After all, Jews are descendants of Abraham, who was renowned for his hospitality. But it's hard to be hospitable when we've hardened our synagogues, our JCCs, and our Hillels. The sukkah is supposed to expose us to the elements and remind us of the years when the people of Israel wandered in the desert. Hopefully, it will also remind us that even as we seal our institutions to defend against the dangerous realities of the moment, we must keep our communities open ready to welcome Jews of all kinds and to embrace other communities in our friendship. That would certainly be good for the Jews. We're making a change here at People of the Pod, and that was our last ever Good for the Jews segment. No, we haven't run out of things that are good for the Jews. I'm an inveterate optimist, and I can always find something positive. But we're changing up our closing segment, and I'm so excited to share with you what comes next. Talk to you next week. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 